morning. How are you today? Awesome. Glad to hear it. We're going to be spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount for a little while. I don't even know when we're going to end. Mainly because I can't remember how many weeks this series is. I'm just kidding. I remember exactly how many. It's eight. Um, we'll be here for a little while. Um, and uh, yeah, my name's Tim. Hi. If you don't know me and I don't know you, hello. I do this. Hi. I, uh, I come up and I talk at you and hope that it helps you grow in faith, all that different stuff. So, uh, yeah, we're going to start on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and I have to admit that uh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of my favorite sections in the entirety of the Bible, uh, so much so I even did my master's thesis on it. So uh, that's been a while back. I'm old now, older. I'm, t- I'm going to turn 40 soon. Anyway, it was a while ago. I was in my 20s. Uh, I can't believe I touched the Sermon on the Mount for my grad school work, to be honest with you. That wasn't smart. Anyway, um, I wanted to start off by asking a question. Have any of you ever experienced failure before? Anybody? Most people? The laughter in the room tells me I'm with you and you're with me. So I want to tell you about a time where I failed. Um, Failed pretty miserably, too. So, when I was in Bible college, when I started there, it was Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary. When I finished, it was Cincinnati Christian University. Today, it doesn't exist. Um, But when I was there uh, in my uh, undergrad years, uh, it was required, if you were a Bachelor of Arts degree major, that you had to take language requirement. And so I signed up to take Greek. Yes, there's a reason there's the phrase, it's Greek to me. Uh, The languages that you take in Bible college are are not only difficult because learning a different language is difficult, but on top of that, uh, the languages are dead languages. They're not spoken anymore, and so uh, there's a lot of hoops to jump through and Something else was going on for me when I was in college. I had a dream. I wanted to make it as a rock musician. I had a band that I started with my buddies when I was in high school. And uh, we wrote songs, we played shows, concerts, whatever you want to call it. And I would spend a lot of long hours in the evenings throughout the week practicing music. And the problem is, when you spend a lot of time doing one thing, you don't have a whole lot of time to devote to another thing. And unfortunately, if four years of learning Spanish in high school taught me anything, which it, it, it didn't, that's the point, I learned how to pass tests rather than learn how to engage in the language. And I thought that the learning to pass tests would carry over into studying New Testament or Koine Greek, the the common Greek of the day. It it did not. The professor expected more than just being able to pass a quiz. And, you know, would he think, I'm going to, you know, cram the night before and I'll understand the vocabulary? You just can't go about that way. And so I spent way too much time 
until like the wee hours of the night uh, playing music with my buddies and trying to cram, I'm dead serious here, 30 minutes before the quiz. And the first couple quizzes, they went all right. Not so much after that. And so I, I finally, I took the final exam that semester and waited for my grade to come out on the computer and there it was. I opened it up, a big old F. And it wasn't for fun. It was for fail. <clears throat> now my professor at the time, this is my sophomore year, my first semester of my sophomore year in college, my professor stopped me and said, hey, you actually did a little bit enough to possibly get a D and pass, so I'll pass you if you'll jump into the next class. Now, in my mind at the time, I'm thinking, okay, the, the building on top of things isn't working here for me, so if I take the next class, I'm doomed. That's what the D would have been that he would have given me for doomed. Um, so I, I, ended up, I ended up dropping uh, Greek, and I, I, took the, I took the F, and I ended up becoming a Bachelor of Science. I had to take geology instead. And I graduated college. This is the only class in my life I ever failed. I felt really embarrassed. And the worst part about it was, was the next year in my junior year, I signed up to take a class on Romans with the same professor that I had for Greek. And in the first two weeks of the class, I really lit up. I, I actually, that, the latter part of my sophomore year, I, I quit the band that I was in. And I realized that I was really serious about my studies. And in the beginning of the Romans class, you're, you're learning so much. I mean, it's Paul, it's Romans, there's a lot to learn there. And I was really into it. And, and about two weeks in, the professor decided that he was going uh, to let us in on a secret that he had in the class. You could either take the B track or the A track. The B track meant that you can just do the bare minimum on the syllabus, and as long as you did it at a satisfactory level, you could achieve the highest grade you could achieve in the class was a B. But if you wanted to know more about Romans and study in depth and, and read extra and even join a book club, you could maybe achieve an A. And I decided to take the A track. And I ended up doing really well in that class. So much so that that professor wrote a recommendation for me to go do my master's degree where I did the Sermon on the Mount stuff for my master's thesis. And when I went to thank him for writing that recommendation letter, I first told him, I was like, I'm surprised you wrote that. I failed your Greek class. And he forgot that that was the case. Uh, so he looked a bit stunned. I went on to, to do really well in Greek in seminary. Don't worry, I, I, I'm not fibbing about knowing Greek now. Just that was a bad experience. But the other thing I asked him in that moment is I said, hey, can you give me some advice as I continue on in my career? And he said, yeah. He goes, 
for most people, it's easy to focus on the things that they're most passionate about and spend all their time doing that. But if you really want to make it in life, you've got to get down into the details and be willing to do the hard work even on the things that you don't like because that will make you a more well-rounded person. And that piece of advice stuck with me. It's the antidote to my failure because I, I spent time just doing the things I was enjoying doing at the time and didn't put in the effort that was needed to actually succeed in the thing that I should have wanted to succeed at. So there's my story of failure, and that's not my only failure of life, but it's one that I don't forget very often. And failure is a funny thing because most of us don't like the feeling of failure. Most of us don't like to put effort at something that we can't achieve, that we can't attain, that we can't do well in. And you're probably wondering, why are you talking about failure so much? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is, is really interesting. I once heard it said that the reason that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount It's because he was raising the bar so high for his listeners that they'd realize that they couldn't possibly achieve it and therefore need him. And that's true. But, as I hope we catch as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, the bar is high that Jesus sets so that we will reach it. So that we will reach it. See, the thing about people setting a bar high for you, the thing about people demanding that you reach the high bar, is not so that they can be hard on you, not so they can set you up to fail, but because they want you at your best. God wants us at our best. So much so that he did something about it. And that's really the story of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to spend some time studying the words of Jesus. Because when Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, makes his call to his disciples telling them to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When he issues that commission, the bar is raised. We cannot be disciples of Jesus if we don't know what he said and did, and we don't attempt to emulate it by the power of the Spirit encouraging us. And so what better way to know what Jesus said for his listeners, his students, his disciples to go out and do than to camp in the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. And so where we're going to start here is not at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 5. We'll do that next week. There's a section when you get into the middle part of chapter 5 where Jesus makes a bit of a a bold statement, a shocking statement, a discomforting statement, a bar-raising statement to those that are listening to what he has to say. 
And so I want us to read this today, and, and we'll, we'll dig into it a bit, and then uh, go on our merry way after that, and then do more sermon on that stuff next week. Starting at verse 17 of Matthew 5, Jesus says the following, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. (sighs) To give you a little bit of context about the Sermon on the Mount and why we've got it here where we do in Matthew, the gospel writers relayed to us what Jesus said and did in the real. But each of them laid their Jesus stories out in ways that made abundantly clear the theological claims about Jesus, that he was in fact the Son of God, the Lord and Savior. And Matthew sets up Jesus in the story in a way that any Jewish person at the time that was hearing this story would have recalled. He frames Jesus up in the same way that Moses is in the book of Exodus. And guess what we're going to do, Exodus, later on after the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be fun. So he sets up Jesus as not just a new Moses, but no, as greater than Moses, because he is, in fact, the Son of God. And so Jesus, when he is born, he has to evade death by being called into and out of Egypt. He ends up going into the wilderness, and then he goes up on to the mountaintop, where he delivers his sermon, a law, the new law, so to speak. If you know the story of Moses, it, it, it rings a bell. The framing is the same, but the guy is different. Where Moses and, and all before failed Jesus is the Son of God, perfect, sinless, spotless, and obedient to the Father, even to death. That's the story that Matthew tells. And so when Jesus comes and he he delivers this Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, he means business. He wants them to hear what they need to hear in order to navigate their lives in the way God designs for them to do. And as he goes through this sermon, Jesus issues some really hard teachings along the way, and we'll dig into those in the coming weeks. Because Jesus doesn't just reiterate what is already in the law, 
But he makes the depth of applying the law and life all the more challenging for those trying. He will say things like, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anybody that even hates his brother or sister in their heart has already committed murder. See, you can't even have a bad thought about somebody. (laughs) He says things like that. And so the reason that we've started here today, rather than the Beatitudes, which open up Jesus' teaching, is because it's important that we understand why the Sermon on the Mount is being taught by Jesus, what he's aiming for, what he is calling us to. And so to get into this verse by verse here, Jesus starts out by saying that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill And therefore, to his listeners, do not think that he's come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law or the prophets, he's speaking about the entirety of the Old Testament. He's not necessarily just talking about the prophets of old in their ministry, but the words that they wrote that encompass our Old Testament. So the Old Testament's broken up into multiple sections. You've got law, prophets, history, all all the like, wisdom literature, Jesus is basically using this phrase, law and prophets, to say, all of it still stands. I haven't come to get rid of it and replace it, but to fulfill it. And to fulfill it means a couple different things. Number one, Jesus is going to become the embodiment of what obedience to the law looks like because he will live without sin. But he also, in his obedience to the Father and giving of his life, he will make a way for those of us that are powerless to reach that raised bar on our own to be able to reach it with the help of God by the sacrifice of his Son and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's getting ahead of ourselves here. But that's what he means here when he says he's come to fulfill it, not to abolish it. Furthermore, he says, truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke. That one letter, it actually is one Yoda, uh, not Yoda, the Star Wars character. Yoda, the Greek letter, it looks like an I. It's the smallest letter in, in, in Greek. And he goes on and he says, not even the stroke of a letter, What he's saying here is that I'm so serious about fulfilling what's there and about not abolishing it that not even the smallest little bit of that writing will go by the wayside. It will persist. And then he goes on as if the bar hasn't been raised already. He makes it personal. He says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody wants to be least. But notice something. It's not just about keeping or doing the commandments, but also not making sure, or making sure that you do not lead others astray from deviating from the commands as well. 
He goes on, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So not only does Jesus teach his disciples and show them how to live in this new kingdom life and expects them to live out this way, but there's a little foreshadowing with his statement here. Whoever does and teaches them, so when he gets to the end of Matthew and he does the Great Commission, that's part of it. Being a disciple is not just about the being and doing, but the leading others. A disciple makes disciples. And so Jesus' expectation, that bar raised, is to keep the commandments and to lead other people into doing the same. And then he puts the cherry on top. And it's the thing that if you read this passage with modern eyes and, and hear it with modern ears, you may misunderstand something. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of us with modern eyes to see and ears to hear might see the scribes and Pharisees and say, well, that's not a very high bar. Aren't the scribes and the Pharisees the bad guys of the story? Jesus didn't get along with them very much. They got in fights all the time over all sorts of things. And of course, Jesus wins because he's the good guy. But for those listening to Jesus at the time that he's actually preaching this sermon, his fellow Jewish people that were living within a religious system that had religious leaders, that had scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of the people that were trained up to teach and lead the people, these scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is referring to are considered with high esteem. They're the leaders. They're the ones that know it all and do it right and get it right. And so if you are sitting out by the mountainside listening to Jesus and hopefully not hearing blessed are the cheesemakers. That's a Monty Python reference, sorry. If you're listening to him intently, and hearing what he's saying, you hear him say that you must exceed the righteousness of the elite. You might be sitting there thinking, I'm done for. I can't even wake up in the morning and get my hair to go in the right place. Well, I can, but... I stumble putting on my shoes. I speed too much. I slow down too often. I said a thing to my loved one the other day I wish I could take back. I thought a thing that I wish I didn't think, but I thought it anyway. I failed Greek. I don't know about you, but I read this section in the Sermon on the Mount and realize what Jesus is calling his hearers to. And I want to curl up in a ball and hide somewhere. Because I know I can't measure up. And I'm guessing by the chuckles when I asked if you've ever experienced failure, that all of you probably feel the same way 
hearing these words. But even though Matthew doesn't give us the Sermon on the Mount starting here, but he has the whole thing in Jesus' Beatitudes at the beginning, it's important for us to start here and understand what the Sermon on the Mount is really about, what it's really there for, why Jesus said it. Because he didn't just come here to give you a golden ticket to the pearly gates of heaven, but to write what was wrong about each and every one of us. Because as Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Jesus came, he came so that they may have life and have it to the full. But that means life, living the life God desires, setting the bar high. Because people that love you, a God that loves you sets the bar high because he wants the best for you and the best out of you. And Jesus being the son, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, is in cahoots with the Father. He wants the same for those that listen. And so he sets the bar high, not to tear you down, but to show you your need to be built up. And this is where we often can misunderstand Jesus. If we miss this part of the Sermon on the Mount... We may be missing Jesus. Because Jesus came to set our lives back on the course that God designed them for in the first place before we sinned. And he sets the bar high for us before doing the work that will help us reach it. But too often, those of us that come to Jesus settle for something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer once called cheap grace. I've got a quote here by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He came in the flesh so that those of us that are alive and that encounter him can live life in the flesh in light of the kingdom. So that we could begin, though in our faulty, sinful nature, taking step by step, toward jumping and reaching the bar by the power of the Spirit. The grace that God gives us is not cheap grace. The grace without commitment, without repentance, without confession, without discipleship. The grace that God gives us, that he sent his son to give us, is a grace that empowers us and emboldens us and saves us to reach the high bar that God has for us. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount without catching this, you not only miss the sermon, but you're missing Jesus. He wants us to have grace in the full, 
to experience grace in all of its splendor. To know that while we stumble on our own, God has done something to lift us up. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. As we study it during this season that we're in, it is the teaching of Jesus to his would-be disciples, calling them to a high bar, teaching them how to live amongst each other in light of God and even toward their enemies and calling them to a greater way. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us the antithesis to cheap grace and instead invites us to recognize that on our own we cannot reach the bar, but we need God's grace. We need his son's sacrifice and we need his spirit's empowerment to reach it. And God being so good as he is doesn't set a high bar We'll have the expectation and the path forward to reach it. When I had that conversation with that professor, and he looked like a deer in the headlights when I admitted to him that I failed his, his class, I told you that the reason I even opened that conversation was because he's the person that ended up writing my recommendation to get into seminary. I failed his class. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. Anybody that spends time teaching people anything wants them to succeed. So I wasn't exactly his bright star. But he ended up being an encouragement to me. The reason I decided to take that A track in his class was because one day, right before he started opening that up, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't like really talking in groups in front of people. I know this sounds weird having me do this thing, but I'm, I can be kind of bashful and, and I can take a while to open up. And so I'm not one to like raise my hand in class and give all the answers and ask all the questions but I was really getting a lot out of this class. And he asked a question, and I don't even remember what the question is or what I answered, but I do remember what, I, what he said to me afterward. I raised my hand and I responded to his question. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's a really astute observation. Up until that point in life, I very rarely had anybody look at me and tell me that something I said mattered. I'd very rarely had that level of encouragement. I didn't take the A track because I thought I was going to be a smarty pants student. It was actually kind of dumb of me to do in light of where I had been up to that point. But I did it because in that small moment, that professor said something that inspired me. And I thought, you know, maybe I can actually give this a shot. And that same person continued to inspire me to the point where I've come today, giving me that advice. And if a person can inspire someone in that level, 
how much greater than the God of the universe, the God of all creation, the God of all power, of all knowledge, of all blessing. How much greater can he inspire us through what he's done through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit to nudge us to the place he wants to take us? Each week we take communion and we remember not only what God has done for us, but the way that he made for us through his son Jesus laying down his life for us so that we could have a right path, a clear path to God. I'm going to invite you to take a moment to contemplate what God has done for us. And after that, we'll take communion together as one church family. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup, and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord God, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you love us, that you uh, call us to be the, the best of how you created us to be, but that you did not leave us into our own devices to get there, but made a way and gave us the strength through your spirit to inch our way closer. And I pray, God, that uh, as we uh, study the teachings of your son, Jesus, uh, that we won't just be challenged, uh, but that we'll be inspired to reach the high bar in every opportunity that we have. And I pray, God, that where we lack, that you will give us the strength and the power that we need to do it. And that when we stumble, that you will remind us of your grace and the hope we have in your son Jesus to get up, back up and start walking again. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.